0: Trying some new technology this morning. No no connections here. The last couple of weeks we were in the Gospel of Mark and we were looking at Mark chapter 9, 14 through 29, which deals with the evil spirit, the boy having an evil spirit cast out of him. And in light of some questions that were asked along the way, we want to pursue that, not that necessarily that passage, but just a little about Christ, a little about demons and power that they may have or may not have. But a few moments ago, I hit a piece of candy. It's a chocolate delight. Anyone, coconut delight rather. Anyone like a coconut delight? There's chocolate on it. Zach likes it. Zach, do you want to see if you can find that piece of candy? But you won't, so I know that. <laughs> but he would look and look and look, and he probably would not find it. I didn't say where it was. I just said it's in the building somewhere. And says in the sanctuary. He would probably look for a long, long time. Now, I want you to watch, Zach. I'm going to hide this piece of candy. Now, you may come and find it. Now watch. Do you think he'll be able to find the piece of candy? No tricks. Okay, you may have it. Thank you. Thanks, Zach. I want you to think about that in the context of the enemy, this Satan and his demons, with whom we deal. God has not. Allowed Satan to work while we're in the dark. God has communicated to us how Satan works so that we know how he works, and in essence, we can go and respond to him according to how he works because God has hid the candy in our sight, so to speak, while we're watching. It would be comparable also to what happened in the Revolutionary War. As the Americans were fighting the English, the Americans studied the English and watched how they did war. And because they knew how the English would fight, they had an advantage because if the English were marching in their formation down a wooden road knowing trees the americans did not have to follow suit they could hide in trees they could hide behind trees so they could come and go and because the english wanted to stay in formation many times they could defeat them see if we know the enemy and how he works we can have victory how does the enemy work in the church age does he possess people with demons. And please understand that as we consider some scripture this morning, we're considering just a few passages, there are many passages that we could consider, and I want you to think along with me, and if you find that I am maybe not on target, you're free to talk to me later and say, you know, Pastor, I have a question about this, I have a question about that, because I'm thinking through what scripture says. How do demons and Satan work today? Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And as we interact with 2 Corinthians chapter 2, just briefly, it's important to keep in mind between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that the problems Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians. Apparently were corrected or dealt with by the church in Corinth. Between first and Second Corinthians, the Judaizer's intruders from Palestine would have come and made some accusations about Paul. Paul made a painful visit between First and Second Corinthians to deal with some issues in Corinth. After Paul's visit to Corinth, apparently Paul, or one of Paul's representatives, was openly insulted. That is, openly insulted within the church in Corinth. Titus was sent with a severe letter to punish the wrongdoer, the one who would have insulted Paul or one of his representatives. Titus came back to Paul with a good report of the Corinthians' responsiveness, and then 2 Corinthians Corinthians is being written. We want to pick up with verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 2. If anyone has caused you grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. So apparently, the person who caused the problem was punished by the church in Corinth. They responded to what needed to be done. And in verse 7... Now, instead, you ought to forgive him and comfort him so that he will not be overcome by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So, apparently, the man that was being punished repented, he changed, he had a turn about, but yet the church was apparently still not treating him well, and Paul says, reaffirm your love for him, forgive him, comfort him. Verse nine, the reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us For we are not unaware of his schemes. Paul is saying forgive, comfort, reaffirm your love to this gentleman that had been punished. And that would be a test of their obedience. But in verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. That is in the context of relationships. He says that Satan might not outwit us again. That is in the context of relationships, forgiveness, a willingness to forgive, carrying out punishment for an individual. Keep that in mind. In Second Corinthians chapter two, five through eleven, we touched on that in. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you contrast that with Ephesians chapter 2, we won't discuss that passage. But you'll find there he again talks about Satan and what Satan does. And it's in the context of Satan hiding the gospel of Christ from unbelievers. In Ephesians chapter 6, in 10 through 20, we find there that Paul talks about the fact that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against spiritual forces of evil and so on, referring to the demonic world. In Colossians chapter 2, 6 through 23, particularly verse 15, it's talking about the fact that Satan has been defeated. And in that context, it's a context of incorrect teaching concerning Christ. It's concerning doctrine. But let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll begin reading with verse 1. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is ministering in the city of Ephesus. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, The Spirit clearly says that in the last times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now notice what he clearly states. Things taught by demons, and they'll follow deceiving spirits. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. We're dealing with following deceiving spirits. We're dealing with things taught by demons, and those teaching them are hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people in verse 3 to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Have you stopped to consider that in the religious community today, and he is speaking to the believers in Ephesus, he's speaking to a religious community, all the hype over food and what to eat and what not to eat, what is good and what is not good. And there are religious groups and have been down through the ages that say you should not marry. That that comes through deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. See, one of the ways the enemy, Satan and his demons, work is through incorrect doctrine. Particularly concerning Christ. Paul clearly says in verse 4, Everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with Thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer so you go in a restaurant do you buy a good salad that's supposed to be healthy or do you slip over to McDonald's and buy a Big Mac oh you can't have the Big Mac that's really wrong Is it? It's received with thanksgiving or consecrated received with thanksgiving and then consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Have we stopped to consider that in the religious world today one of the things that Satan and his demons do is to make an issue about food and say this is good this is not good this is of God and this is not of God. That there may be deceiving spirits and demons behind those who may teach certain things. He says in verse 6, if you point these things out to brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Brought up in the truths of faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Let's go to another passage. We'll tie this together in a little while. To James chapter 4. Again, in James, he talks, talks about uh, what is happening. That should be James 3.13, not James 4.13. James 3.13, we'll pick up with verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show up by his good life, by deeds done in humility that come from Wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. And before we read on with verse 15, in verse 13, someone's wise in understanding. How is it going to be evident? By good life, done by deeds, done in humility that come from wisdom. The contrast, but bitter envy. You know, you're not liking someone else. You want something different. And selfish ambition is basically party spirit. Oh, we're better than the next group. When we get to heaven, the Baptists are going to have the front seat. The rest will have the back seat because the Baptists are better. You know, the party spirit. Selfish ambition. Well... I'm a better teacher than Arden is. He only teaches in one. And I speak to the whole church party spirit, selfish ambition. Ah, oh, why don't you come over and worship with us? Because we're better than where you are party spirit. And notice what he says in verse 15 such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Why would he say what he does in verse 16, where you have envy and selfish ambition, you find disorder in every evil practice? Because that wisdom is earthly unspiritual of the devil that wisdom affects relationships one of the primary areas the enemy and his demons work today is in relationships envy selfish ambition disorder just confusion. Family's not functioning well. Local church isn't functioning well. And every evil practice. A number of years ago within the greater Wyoming Valley I got a call and someone said, did you hear what happened at church so and so Sunday night? I said, no I didn't hear what happened and I should have probably just said there zip the lip, don't tell me anymore but they proceeded to tell me some. They said they'd get into an argument, and they had yelling at one another. They would use the Bible, and they would say, here's what the Bible says, and they would speak to others in that way. And they said, it, it was terrible. And by the way, it was what we would call a fundamental church. Sound and doctrine. And I thought about what happened. I thought, you know, the demons were very active in that church. Why? What was there? Selfish ambition, disorder, and evil practice. But, in verse 17, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive. Full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. You see the contrast? But the wisdom that comes from heaven is pure, peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. We're again dealing with the relationships and how people get along. We won't read chapter 4, but he goes into what causes fights and quarrels among you. And don't they come from your desires that battle within you and so on. And verse 7, he says, submit yourself then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4 and verse 12 deal with relationships. And who's at work in those relationships? None other than the enemy, Satan. You could go to 1 Peter chapter 5, 8 and 9, which talks about the fact that the enemy, like a roaring lion, is prowling around, you know, wanting to have an impact. 2 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3 talks about incorrect doctrine and how the enemy is going to work through incorrect doctrine. 1 John chapter 2, 18, through verse 27, he talks about... Antichrist, those who come and are going to be against Christ. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. John writes to people so that Their joy might be complete so that they might know that they have a relationship with God. And he says in chapter 4 and verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they come from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. It clearly states false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 2, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, even now, is already in the world. In the context of discussing Christ, those that are against Christ, Antichrist, obviously are not of God, would be of the enemy, but it's in the context of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. You will find the same thing being true in 2 John and verse 7. And we could spend many hours discussing the passages that we mentioned. I want you to Notice that Satan's primary focus today is to promote false teaching concerning Christ. False teaching concerning Christ. So you're talking to someone, where are they at? What do you believe concerning Jesus Christ? critical. Because one of the primary ways the enemy works. Years ago someone stopped by the parsonage and Ruth Ann called me and my study was back here in the corner and she said there's two people here do you want to talk to them? I said sure send them down. She knew who they were I knew who they were. So they came down and in the old vestibule we got talking and uh, they were telling me about what's coming in the future and they wanted to discuss future events and I said, uh I'm going to ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin and it's through him that there can be a relationship with God? That's what I got, silence. I said, ask you a simple question question. Do you believe that Jesus, you know, is the son of God? And, you know, he came and died and rose from the dead. And it's through faith in Christ that we can have a relationship with God. And again, silence. So the third time I said, I'm asking you a simple question. And the third time they said, yes, but. So, what do you mean, but? Well, we have to, yes, Jesus came. He was a creation of God. And he died, and he rose from the dead. But we gotta do all these good works, and if we don't do enough, we probably won't make it. And I don't normally do this, but I said I know a little bit about Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar. And I said, let's let's go to John chapter three. So I took him to John chapter three, and I said, this is clearly what Scripture says. And they they knew they'd been had, so they graciously said goodbye. About a week and a half later, two men stopped by. I said, you know, we'd like to talk to you. I said, sure, I said, I really don't have time now, but I'm willing to talk to you some other time. We set up a time to get together to talk. I said, now there's some stipulations if we're going to talk. The subject has to be Jesus, nothing else. No coming events, only Jesus. And we can only use the King James Bible. I happen to know that that particular group of people, in their translation of the Bible, distorts doctrine concerning Jesus. But they were willing, they do use King James. I was willing to use King James. So we agreed. They came and we talked. I could take them to scripture. But they insisted that Jesus was created by God. false teaching because they were incorrect about Christ. Within the last year and a half, talking to a pastor in our greater Wyoming Valley area, and the reason I was talking to him, I wanted to ask him some specific questions about something that had happened In his life and with some fellow believers. And he shared a few things, what had happened, and some of the items in James 3, you know, selfish ambition, bitter envy would have come out. And I walked away from that encounter and I thought, you know, we're dealing with satanic activity here. Because relationships were not fruit of the spirit relationships, Satan and demons work to promote false teaching concerning Christ, but also false teaching concerning the believers' freedom in Christ. We didn't discuss Galatians 5 or Colossians 2 or 1 Timothy chapter 4, the latter part of chapter 4. But there you'll find that Satan and his demons will attack the freedom that the believer has in Christ, that it's Christ in Christ alone. And thirdly, Satan and his demons seek to attack (coughs) Holy Spirit produced or Holy Spirit fruit of the relationship. Holy Spirit produced fruitful relationships. I guess I got that right this time. You know, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control type of relationships. The enemy and his demons will work to get us away from that. So when believers are not having those type of relationships, they probably need to stop and say, whoa, the enemy must be at work here. We're not going to look at these passages. But as you take 1 Corinthians through the book of Jude, and in a general way you will find that basically those books deal with the doctrine of Christ. The freedom that believers have in Christ and relationships. And again, we're not going to all these passages. But I list all passages from Romans. It should be Romans, not 1 Corinthians. All the epistles are very, very strong on the doctrine of Christ. The freedom we have in Christ as believers... And relationships. It seems to me as I study the epistles. That those are the three primary ways. Satan works today. You say what about demon possession? We'll get to that. And I list some more passages. Colossians. First Thessalonians and so on. And then some other passages in first Timothy. Through Jude. Jude. Now, some general comments. The authority to cast out demons was given to the Twelve in the Gospels. Mark 3 13 through 16. You can see parallel passages. The authority to cast out demons was given to the Twelve. The Epistles do not speak of casting out demons. Starting with Romans, through Jude, casting out demons is not discussed. You know, as far as, you know, this demon was cast out or someone needs to cast out a demon. Paul does not give authority to or exhort Timothy or Titus to cast out demons in First and Second Timothy and Titus, the focus is on the character of leaders, the focus is on doctrine, and the focus is on relationships. Now, if casting out demons and a concern with demons is important today, would he not have said something to Timothy and to Titus? You know, as he wrote to them on how to lead and guide a church. No mention. Pastors and elders are not commanded to cast out demons, nor are they given authority to do so. Nowhere in scripture does it say Christ has given to a pastor or to elders the authority to cast out demons. Nor are they exhorted to do that. Pastors and elders are to be deeply concerned about guarding themselves. Who am I as a person? Am I what I should be in my character? Am I having Holy Spirit produced relationships with Ruth Ann, with my kids, and with other people? Elders, pastors are to take care of themselves, guard themselves. They're to be guarding the flock and what they teach and how they teach. That there is correct doctrine concerning Christ, correct doctrine concerning the freedom in Christ, correct teaching concerning relationships. They're to shepherd the flock, they're to care for the flock. Emphasize very strongly. I'm not going to stand before God someday and God, or Christ says to me, Dan, as a shepherd, how many demons did you cast out? My oh God, I didn't cast any out. That's okay. But did you guard yourself? Did you guard your mind and what you feed your mind? Were you a student of scripture? Did you accurately and rightly divide God's word? Did you warn people when they needed warned? Did you encourage them when they needed? Did you really have Christ-like relationships so you could say to your flock, follow me as I follow Christ? If you want to know how to respond to others, look at me. Did you make sure you were on target? That seems to be the thrust of Paul's emphasis. And that's found in Acts 20, 1 and second Timothy, Titus and first Peter 5 and verse 4. If the enemy can lure us to focus on demon possession, then we will ne- neglect Christ and relationships. Ah, oh, demon here, demon there, demons, oh, Satan. Correct doctrine concerning Christ, correct doctrine concerning freedom in Christ spirit of god produce relationships. Demon possession seems to be major during Christ living on earth. This involved god, involves God's purpose to demonstrate the character and being and an identity of Christ. I think it was also to present Or it was also present some in Acts so that the apostles could demonstrate they were commissioned by Christ. I say see Acts 8, Acts 16, and Acts 19. The presence of demons during the time of Christ, Christ's life on this earth, seems to be by God to demonstrate that Jesus had victory over demons and he was going to have ultimate victory over Satan as he went to the cross. Since the gospel of Christ. Is the power of God unto salvation. It would seem. If a person came to faith in Christ. It would address demon possession. The spirit of God comes to live in the believer. The gospel of Christ is the power of God. Not casting out Demons. So I'm interacting with a person who may appear to be demon-possessed. What is their need? Christ. So what if a demon is cast out and they don't come to faith in Christ? Will the demon return? Will the demon return with more? It's the message of the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. stop and ponder that in Christ today we probably have more than when Christ was here himself. Because we have the resurrected Christ who is our head. We're his body. He's our life. Is there demon possession today? I'm not doubting there may be demon possession. But the focal point of the epistles is not possession. The focal point of the epistles is correct doctrine concerning Christ. Correct doctrine concerning freedom in Christ. Correct teaching concerning relationships and pursuing those relationships. We have the living Christ today. And as we think about what we have discussed and we... Think about communion. Reflect on who Christ is. We say, yes, He came, He lived, He had victory over the demons. But He lives within us. Galatians 2 and verse 20. He's our life. Colossians 3 1 through 4. He's for believers. See, when you think of the Twelve, they were given authority to teach and to cast out demons. When you think about the body of Christ today, they are the body of Christ. Christ is in the body of Christ. Christ is in us. We're so rich in Christ. And as we partake of the bread symbol, as we partake of the cup symbol, reflect on the fact that we're remembering in the past Christ, the cross, the resurrection. We're remembering or reflecting on the present. That in the present we're the body of Christ. Christ is our head. He's our life. The enemy's been defeated. We don't need to fear him. Because we have life in Christ. We reflect in the future that one day in the future, Christ, our head, we're going to be with him. We're going to be in his presence. We're going to enjoy him. It's so a communion, past, present, future. And as we partake of communion, I would encourage you to reflect on not the enemy, not how powerful he might be, but on Christ and all that we have in him. Ask the men to come forward, please.